everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. Uh, I want to welcome you to the barn and those of you online. I know for many of you online, uh, you are gathering with us right in the front range of Denver, but for some of you, you are gathering with us in one of the many states in the United States. Some of you are also international. And we just recognize that the body of Christ uh, knows no boundaries. And so it might be that you are looking for a church home. It might be that you have a church home and that you're just enjoying some of uh, what's going on here at Discovery. We're thrilled that you're with us. Last week, obviously, we were all online. And for many of us, we really wanted to be able to gather together. And there was just simply no way that we could figure out how to turn away what we estimated was about the 1,000 or 1,200 people we'd be turning away by having services in the barn. So we all met online, and I heard from a number of people, uh, many friends of mine who would not consider themselves churched, or they're certainly not experienced with church, but it was really important to them, or it's important to you, to worship at Easter. And so here we are the week after Easter, and it might be that you're not a follower of Christ. We want you to know that this is a place where you can belong before you believe, even if you're catching us just through a television set or a screen. Uh, you, this is a community where you can be part of it and you can bring your doubts and the things you're not sure about and you can kind of tune in on what we believe as you figure out if it's true or not. And really last week was the simple recognition that we believe that God is not distant, that God is close, that God comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And that when Jesus not only emptied himself from heaven and was born as a baby, which is just the craziest thing you've ever heard, the only thing crazier than that is that Jesus died for us, that Jesus died for our sins. And then it gets topped three days later that Jesus rose from the dead. These are, these are crazy beliefs that Christians have. And I, I, I understand, I, I actually used to be there myself. I used to be on the outside of the church looking in thinking, people don't raise from the dead. People don't die for other people's sins. And then I discovered it's true, and it changed my life. And we have some people here in the room, many of you online, it's changed our life as well. The invitation for those of you who are not followers of Christ is to look into it. We're not crazy, and we're not stupid. We have put some of our best thinking on this and discovered that it's true, that actually our world is upside down, that the kingdom of God is right-siding things, and it's wonderful. So we invite you into that. We thought we'd follow up with our Easter series uh, well, you know, it's not really maybe a good idea for those of you who aren't used to church, but I wanted to take the words that are associated with the church that we hate, and I wanted to show the, us why we should love them. And so we're just doing a quick three-week series. We're going to talk about absolution. It's like an old Catholic word. Like those of us who are Protestants, we don't really talk about absolution much, but I wanted to talk about absolution because I think it can be a fearful word. Maybe you were raised with it where it was kind of wielded against you, but I think there's some beauty in it. Next week, join us next week, we'll talk about repentance and how repentance is cool. Even though I know when you're driving along, there's not many people with bumper stickers on their car talking about how cool repentance is, but it really is. But repentance has a bad rap in our culture today. But it's this amazing thing. And today, the word I want to talk about is confession. Boy, you talk about a religious word that is loaded with negative meaning, confession. I have heard from so many of you who were raised in a church tradition, primarily the Catholic tradition, where you were made to go to confession as a kid. And it was terrifying for you. You're this kid 
and, and your parents made you go to the church and there, it's all dark and you have, to, you have to kneel on the kneeler and then there's that box and the, and the priest slides open and it's like this meshed kind of flywire. That's not really the word for it, but that's kind of what it is. And you have to tell that man everything you ever did that week. Forgive me, Father, for I've sinned. It has been, if you're a good Catholic, three days since my last confession. If you're a bad Catholic, 97 days since my last confession, whatever it is. Now, I'm not making fun of the Catholic Church because us Protestants, what we decided to do with confession is just ignore it altogether. We just said, well, that's bad, so we're not even going to do it. But in the Bible, confession is this beautiful thing. What I'd like to try to do this morning is redeem that word because these practices, confession, repentance, absolution, God gave us these practices so we could be free. That's why. God gave them for human flourishing, for human freedom. And so we just want to look at a few ways we can confess. And of course, the first way is the most famous way in the church. We confess our sins. When is the last time in your life you sat down with another human being and you confessed your sins to them? Been a while, Protestants? Been a little while? Um, I was 17 when I moved out of home. I graduated from high school. I got a full-time job. I was saving money for college to go through Bible college. And I was living with these roommates, and we, we knew each other. We got along well. And then there came a time where a couple of the roommates left. And so Malcolm and I, who'd been roommates from the beginning, we had to get another roommate to help with the rent, and Joel showed up. Joel was a couple of years older than us, and holy smokes, this guy was intense. Malcolm was a professional chef, which incidentally... I recommend when you're looking for roommates, get a professional chef to leftovers. Sometimes he'd have a girl over, I'd have to get out of there so he could have a date at home and he'd cook this five-course meal for her and I'd come home and eat all the leftovers. It was a great, we had a great symbiotic relationship. Like the, par the way a parasite relates to its host is the way I related to Malcolm, but I digress. Anyway, Joel showed up as the new roommate. We didn't know Joel very well and he was just kind of a weird guy. And Malcolm and I, when Joel wasn't around, we would compare notes with each other on how Joel was a weird guy. We'd talk about him behind his back. And uh, one day, we'd been living together, I don't know, two or three months, and Joel sat me down and he said, hey, I want to meet with you because I want to confess my sin to you. And I was so immature, I was 17. I'd been a Christian like two and a half years. I said, oh, Joel, yeah, because that's very good. Let me take your confession. So I pulled up my chair and in a very self-righteous way, Joel basically confessed to me the negative thoughts he'd been having about me and how he thought he was better than I was, uh, even though I just wrapped up talking to Malcolm about how much better we were than Joel. So I very humbly, uh, and you know, I very, oh, Joel, I forgive you. That's for you and I are good, no problem. And I felt like the better man, you know. And then Joel said, okay, well, that, that feels a lot better now. Thank you. Now it's your turn. And I'm like, my, my turn for what? He's like, now you're going to confess your sins to me. Really? Like, again? And I had to look Joel in the eye, and I had to say, I've been talking about you behind your back, and uh, I think I'm better than you. It was really humbling. It was really painful, and then it was really liberating. Confessing your sin is exactly like going to the gym. You don't want to do it, and then you're really glad you did it. When is the last time... You've sat down with another human being and you've confessed your sins. Uh, those of you who, who call Discovery home, that's your homework this week. I can't make you do it. I don't have that kind of power. 
Uh, there's days I wish I was a Catholic priest. I feel like they had that guilt that they could wield. I don't, I don't wield it well. But I'm going to invite you to do it. Maybe you could do it today at lunch. Like this, you've got nothing to do at lunch. You're like, oh, I'll just confess my sins. And some of you are like, well, that's not going to work because we're going out to lunch. No problem. Have the waitress sit down. And before she takes your order, just say, hey, I just need to do this thing. It'll freak her out. She'll probably call the manager. Um, but it's liberating. It's liberating. Uh, I've got some friends, Howard and Holly Satterthwaite. They, they're writing a book right now. They showed me an early version of it. And it's about confession. And it's about how it's an incredible path to freedom. And I really like what they put. They said there's two extreme reactions to sin. Either don't care or despair. Now, I think those of you who came from the Catholic tradition, maybe it's despair. You just go into guilt and shame so quickly. Maybe in the Protestant tradition too. But I think some of us who are Protestants, and then some of you who maybe aren't churched at all, for you it's don't care. Like, you know, I think in the Protestant church, we've swung the pendulum so far away from personal holiness. It's like we've now just taken a giant paintbrush of grace and we just paint it over our whole life. Like, doesn't that matter anymore? We don't really take account for the things that we do. But there's another way, and it leads to freedom, and that's why we confess so we can be free. When we think of the Bible, when we think of people in the Bible, and we think of confession of sin, at least the person that comes to the forefront of my mind is King David in the Old Testament. I think King David is the exemplar. He's the number one example. He wrote about it in the Psalms. Whether you're a man or a woman, I'm going to invite you just for the next minute or so to imagine that you're King David. Just picture that you're the king, you're married, and you're attracted to another woman, and you want to have her. And because you're the king, you can have her. She has absolutely no say in the matter. She has no agency over her own body. And so you summon her, and you have her, and then she's pregnant, and now you're in a pickle. You love God, that's true, but your power and your privilege make you think that you're entitled, and you abused the position and the power that God gave you to indulge your sexual desire. So here you are, the king, you're God's representative. You are supposed to be a model of what following God looks like, and you've impregnated a woman who's not your wife, her husband, his name's Uriah, by the way, her husband is faithfully serving as a soldier in your army, protecting you. That's his job. So you bring him home, put him on a leave, hoping, because he's been on the front lines for a while, you're hoping he'll sleep with his wife, he's been gone for a while, and then no one will know who got her pregnant, they'll just assume that it's Uriah's child. But he has way too much honor to do that. He says... I could never possibly enjoy my wife while my band of brothers are risking their lives on the front line. He doesn't even sleep on the couch in his own house. He sleeps on the footsteps of the palace, outdoors. David has to escalate the matter. He has to get this man killed off. So King David writes a note to his general. Make sure Uriah is killed in battle, he writes. He says, here's what to do. Go ahead and go forward in battle. Put Uriah on the very front lines, and then once the battle is most fierce, make everyone retreat except Uriah. Give everyone the command to retreat. Leave Uriah stranded so he's absolutely killed. King David writes that note 
on an official edict, folds it over, seals the note with the, the kingly seal, and then gives it to Uriah to deliver to the general. Sends Uriah back to the battle, says, hey, Uriah, here's a message I want you to give to the... Now, now this is a sealed note from the king. Uriah would never break the seal to read what's in the note. He has no idea that it's his death warrant. Rape, then cold-blooded, premeditated murder. What is it you've done that you're afraid to confess? One of the reasons to read the Bible is to feel better about yourself. Because if you think that your sin has gotten you into trouble, you can always read about David. And if that doesn't do the trick, I then recommend First or Second Corinthians. Either one will do. You will feel much better about yourself. What is it that you're afraid to get out in the open? What, what is it? A secret addiction? That's it? The way you treated someone, that's it? Sin, when kept in secrecy, it just festers and infects and it's toxic. But you can confess, and David gives us a model confession in Psalm 51. In fact, this psalm that we're about to read, just a portion of it, is the psalm David wrote after he was discovered in this predicament. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and you're justified when you judge. The reason I like that psalm is because David didn't have like a twinge of conscience and then find somebody and confess, David was cornered and busted when he figured out he had nowhere to escape and had to come clean. Like, doesn't it drive you crazy? The people that, it's not so much that they're sorry for what they did, it's that they're sorry that they got caught. Have you, have you noticed that? It just drives you crazy. It drives me crazy. Uh, I get really frustrated. We are unfortunately in yet another era where there are some fairly public Christians whose private lives are being exposed for the fraud, the, the, the massive disparity between their public rec reputation and their private behavior. But they're never getting ahead of it. They're never like having a conscience moment and saying, listen, I need everyone to know what's been going on for years. No, what happens is they get caught and oftentimes they double down and then they, the evidence is overwhelming and then they hire a public relations firm who carefully craft a message to avoid legal responsibility, right? Does this drive you crazy? Am I alone? And this drives me crazy too. Do you, do you want to know who it doesn't drive crazy? And this is what drives me even more crazy. It doesn't seem to bother God whatsoever. Man, that drives me crazy. You see that David, Nathan, the prophet, came to David and busted him. And God was very willing to take David's confession when he had nowhere else to go. The prodigal son, as he's coming back to the father, not because he's repentant. Why? Because he had nothing left in the checkbook. He had to eat, so he decided it, it was almost a political move that the prodigal son made. I guess if I fall on the mercies of my dad, you could almost make the argument that he's saying, well, dad's soft enough, he'll take me back. Someone's got to feed me. I'll give him a nice speech. What's interesting about the dad who is the God figure in that story, the dad doesn't even let him get his half-baked political speech out before the dad's like, enough of that, come home, come home. Listen, 
Now is always the right time to confess. John writes in 1 John 1, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. When is the last time you sat down with someone and confessed your sin? It's freeing. It's, it's less about right and wrong and guilt and shame, and it's more about detoxifying what's in your soul. Since uh, September, Lisa and I have been on a clean eating binge. It's a real bummer. The older I get, the less my metabolism has freedom in whatever it metabolizes. It's getting pickier as I get older. It's like, I'm not metabolizing that. Yeah, I can metabolize that. And so we've been studying clean eating, which means I have been digesting more kale than probably all of you put together. Like the amount of kale that I have personally digested since September is stunning. And so what we did is we started in September having a morning kale beverage. It's, it's liquid kale. It's as amazing as it might sound. And the way you get your palate used to it is you first of all put apple and kiwi in it, but after a month you wean yourself off any sugar, and I'm going to give you the recipe right now. It's two cups of water, it's celery, cucumber, kale, spinach, arugula, jalapeno, cilantro, uh, parsley, turmeric, and lemon juice blended, oh, and avocado. We've been drinking that eight ounces a morning since about mid-October, and I love it. Uh, it wakes up my brain better than ca uh, coffee does now. Sometimes I'll have it for lunch. It's getting to be a problem. I'm slowly becoming green myself. But it's all about getting the toxins out of my body. Yesterday, for the first time se since September, I went through a McDonald's drive through And um, my body could no longer handle a quarter pound of cheese, so I got a Happy Meal because they're small. Now, I've become a real hawk on added sugars, and I know the bun at McDonald's isn't just the carbohydrate of the bun, they also throw sugar on the bun. And I got the little children's fries. It's weird as a 49-year-old man to be uh, ordering a Happy Meal when they ask what kind of toy I want, because I'm like, of course I want the boy's toy, I'm a guy, because they always think I'm ordering it for my child. No, it's for me. So I ate it. It was so good. It was so tasty. And then about 40 minutes later, just my brain started to fog over, like circus music started to play in my head. That's all I could hear. What was that? Toxins. Toxins in my body. The reason to confess your sin is not like some kind of a guilt conscience thing. It's to be clean. It's to be free. It's to be liberated. But what I love about confession is I think we spend all of our time obsessing over confessing our sin, but there's other kinds of confessions in the Bible that lead to freedom. The second one is confession of your false belief. Uh, this has been an area of my life that maybe in the last 10 years or so has really lit up my relationship with Jesus Christ. I, I would say that my relationship with God has deepened uh, in, in a regular habit of this practice than most of the other practices. Confession over a false belief. I've really been on a journey of asking Jesus to uncover areas of my life where I'm living out of a false belief. Now, what do I mean by that? There are things that I believe, but I live like I don't believe them. So I'll give you three examples. I believe that God is with me. I live as if God is not with me. So false beliefs, it's not something conscious. 
It's not that you say, I don't believe God is with me. You'd be like, no, I don't believe that. Of course I believe God's with me. God, God tells us God is always with us. But if you look at my actions, my behavior, and my thinking, I'm living as if God, I believe God isn't with me. Does that make sense? So I believe God is with me. I'm living as if I don't believe God is with me. I believe God loves me. I'm living as if I don't believe God loves me. Here's a really weird one. This is unique to me, but I'll give you a specific one, see if it'll help you. Uh, Up until 2012, I uncovered this belief in 2012. I believed that every sermon I ever preach has to be the best sermon you've ever heard. Every week. Now that's, even saying it, that's crazy. Back to 2012, I was preaching about 40 to 45 sermons a year. About 20 to 25 were decent. It's not a bad average. Batting 500 in the pulpit, that's not bad. Uh, You all knew it. Those of you back then in 2012, you knew it. Even now you know it. Sometimes you walk away, you're like, eh, I'll try again next week. Like, right? That's just the way it is. But I was living under all this pressure. Even though I know what's true is some will be fine, some aren't. That's the way it goes. I was was living as if every sermon, I was putting myself under all this pressure. If I thought it went really well, I'd wake up Monday morning, how am I going to top that? If I thought it went badly, I wanted to resign. In my early days here, I'd be in the lobby, not back there because we weren't back there in the early days, I'd be in the lobby and people would say, that was a fantastic message, God really spoke, and I'd say, no, he didn't. That was terrible. I'd actually say that to you. Is that crazy? 2012, I started to realize, holy smokes, I am not believing the good news of Jesus. The good news of Jesus is, you can preach a dud, it's going to be okay. I'd walk around, I'd be at home with my wife, needing a pat on the head. She's a preacher's kid. She went from raised in a church as the preacher's kid to going to Bible college where chapel was mandatory, four or five sermons a week, to marrying this old weary bag of bones. And 20 years later, and I'm still needing her to say, baby, the Apostle Paul couldn't have preached that one. That's probably the best. (laughs) And when she wouldn't say it, I'd come home all needy. I'd all be mopey like a golden retriever. Does she still love me? She hasn't said the sermon's amazing. But I didn't have the maturity to say that, so I'd sneak in the back door. I'd say, what did you think of church? Which is code for, just lie to me and tell me it was good. That's crazy. Isn't that crazy? When you start to notice a false belief you have, and then you notice the impact on you and the people you love, that'll make you believe the gospel. That's what will help you believe. You start to realize, man, I'm putting myself under all this pressure that God himself is not putting me under. What is it that you believe that you're living as if it's, it's true, but it's not true? And you can displace that false belief with the good news of Jesus, and it's incredibly liberating. And 2015 for me was the time that I had had enough of telling people about the love of God and not experiencing it for myself. I'm like, this is crazy. I believe that God loves me, but I'm living as if God doesn't enough of that. And, and for me, it's been a, a genuine step of faith What if I live as if what God says is true rather than what I think is true? Some of you have such a harsh inner critic and you're giving that inner critic the corner office of your brain and you're paying it a big salary. I would recommend if you have a harsh inner critic that is harsher than God is, fire it. Those of you who know the movie uh, Office Space, that 1990s office, Milton. If you don't know the reference, you can watch it later. Milton, they fired him and he kept showing up for work. 
They just stop paying him. You can stop paying your inner critic. You, he's going to keep, or she's going to keep showing up for work, but you don't have to give it the corner office. You don't have to give it the best real estate in your brain. Put it in the basement like Milton. I since have named my inner critic Milton. That helped. It's very hard to take seriously what he says when his name's Milton. With great apology for anyone whose name is Milton. Very sorry, Milton. It's a perfectly adequate name, and it really helps the inner critic. What is it that God says, but what is the reality you're living out of? Which one's true? And faith for me is believing God over believing myself. That's been huge in my life. Uh, I love what Kurt Thompson says. He's a Christian psychiatrist. He says, we name things to tame things. So what I've done is when I uncover or when someone helps me uncover a false belief in my life, I name it to somebody. And it's not until I say it out loud, I'm like, that's crazy. And you wouldn't believe that what you've been living out of for years that you can be free of because of the gospel. Finally, one of the favorite parts of confession that we don't talk about much in the church, because we always focus on sin, is you can confess true belief. There's a rich tradition in Scripture of confessing what is true. This is one of the reasons to confess, is you declare what is true. Matthew 16, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Just before we go on, Jesus is asking this in Caesarea Philippi. It was known as the shopping mall of religion. Uh, the Greek god Pan, the center of Baal worship. This was where Herod built a temple to Caesar so people could worship Caesar. It was also the home to the Syrian gods. Any god you wanted to worship was in Caesarea Philippi. Jesus takes the disciples out of Jerusalem, out of the motherland, takes them to a foreign place where their belief is foreign and where people are hostile to their belief. And it's in that context Jesus says, okay, in this context where it's not popular to declare who I am, who do people say that I am? Um, I think it's great that we gather on Sunday and we declare together that Jesus is Lord. And listen, those of you who are not followers of Christ, we, we understand that those of us who are followers of Christ, we're the majority and, and you're the minority at Discovery. And I don't say that to make you feel on the outside. You are as welcome as a follower of Christ here. It's just reality. There are more followers of Christ at Discovery than those who are not followers of Christ. I just want to say those of you who aren't Christians, it's, it's not, it doesn't cost us as Christians to declare Jesus is Lord in this room. Amen? I mean, the fact that you said amen. But if we're on lunch break in your workplace or if we're at the park in your neighborhood, or for some of you in your family, Jesus is Lord in that context, that's Caesarea Philippi. That's a much harder context. So, Jesus said, who do people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. Okay. Those of you who are not followers of Christ, that is the question. Who do you say that Jesus is? The answer to that question will change your life. The answer to that question has changed our lives, those of us who are followers of Christ. It's a fascinating move that Jesus makes here. He almost starts like it's a poll. Right? 
Like when you're checking out at Staples and they say, would you like to do a survey to tell us about your experience? You're like, no, I don't want to do another hundredth survey. Just do well at customer service and that'll be the evidence, right? This is a bit of a side rant. It's not even in the notes, but it drives you crazy, doesn't it? All the surveying. That's how Jesus started. Jesus like, what are people saying about me? Just very innocuous and innocuous. And Peter's like, well, people say this. People, here's the word on the street. But then Jesus takes it from this like general idea to a very specific, okay, people, here's where the rubber hits the road of faith. Who do you say that I am? And Peter just goes for it. You know, Peter, he got it wrong as much as he got it right. But man, when he got it right, did he not get it right? You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom to heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Whoa. The reason to declare truth is because it unlocks spiritual power. It gives you access to kingdom power that changes the world. Uh, a, a couple of things on this as we wrap up. First of all, I just want to be overt here. Uh, as a culture of discovery, we have learned a lot and we have benefited a lot from the teaching of the Catholic Church. There's no question. The Catholic Church has so much to teach us. The current Pope, I think, is a phenomenal model of Christian leadership and Christian followership. But there are some key areas where Protestants disagree with Catholics. I think it's important that you know because this passage is actually the most famous disagreement. Catholics believe that when Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church, that Jesus was pointing to Peter. And Catholics teach that Peter is who built the church. And so the Pope is Peter. And so if you study the Catholic Church, all of the popes try to track their lineage back to the Apostle Peter because they believe that Peter is the, the cornerstone of the church. What Protestants believe is that the rock is not Peter, it's the confession of faith. What, what we believe is that anybody who says Jesus is Lord, Jesus builds his church on those people. So Jesus builds his church on you more as much as any church leader. That's the beauty of our movement. A church leader is no more powerful spiritually than an everyday follower of Jesus. Jesus can build his church on you in your home, in your neighborhood, in your workplace. When you leave out of here today, you carry the keys to the kingdom. Just like the Catholic Church teaches that Peter alone has, and you can unlock Hades, the gate of Hades with it. It's pretty powerful, the power you have. By confessing Jesus as Lord, Jesus says, well, here's some keys. You can pick the lock of hell. You can be on the rescue movement. This week I was on a Zoom call with an international Christian group that rescues kids out of sex slavery. It was amazing to get to be part of it. I was doing some of my anxiety leadership work with this incredible group. 130 people on that call from 11 different nations. This is a Christian organization in the name of Jesus rescuing kids. They've been doing it for years. And before they got to me teaching them on leadership anxiety, they just went around to share wins. And one lady's like, we rescued 11 kids this week. We rescued 11 children. They were so excited they got to be in the rescue business you are in the rescue business. You have been given the keys. Those of you who declared Jesus as Lord, you had the keys to the gates of Hades. I love what Shane Claiborne says about the gate of hell. 
Shane Claiborne says, you know, in the church, we, we get this false impression that evil's winning, that, you know, cult, people use these terrible expressions like culture's going to hell in a handbasket. Have you ever heard that? You probably say handbasket, but it's handbasket. Uh, church is going to hell in a handbasket. But actually what Shane Claiborne reminds us, he's like, no, no, Jesus said that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And Claiborne reminds us, he's like, a gate is not an offensive weapon, right? Like if you're watching Braveheart, you know, when Mel Gibson moons and then t- and they, they can take our lives where they can't take our freedom, he's all painted blue, he has a sword in his hand. He doesn't have a gate. He's not riding his horse with a gate like, I'm going to hack you to death with a hinge. No, that would be stupid. You'd be like, this guy's crazy. That's because a gate is not an offensive weapon. It is a defensive thing intended to keep people in. I have a gate in my yard, not because of my children, but because of my dog. My one-year-old Brody wants to go visit everybody, so we have a gate to keep him in. And what Jesus is saying is you have the keys to unlock the gate and let trapped people out. We do not live in a culture where, that is going to hell in a handbasket, where evil is encroaching on the church. We live in a culture where the church is encroaching on evil. Amen? I feel like that deserves an amen. That's pretty good, I think. Yeah, I think that's pretty, pretty powerful. So you have that. And Jesus said, you have the power to loose things. You have that power. I think when Peter made this declaration of faith, he could never have imagined how the world would change because of that declaration, because of the spiritual power that Jesus gave him. So that's confession. That's why we are big fans of confession around here. Uh, so the question is, what do you have to confess this week? If you have sin to confess, confess it. If you have a false belief you're living out of, you can confess it. If you want to confess something true and see God use you in amazing ways, you can confess that. I'm going to invite our crew out to, to lead us in worship as we continue. And what we're going to be doing in worship is confessing something true. This last thing, we're declaring that Jesus is Lord. We're doing it through song and we're doing it with great joy as we prepare for communion. After that... If there's something you want to confess, whether it's a burden, a belief, or something true, I'm going to invite just anyone in the room who is an elder or an elder alumni or anyone who's on staff. If you'd be willing to come down front after Lennox dismisses us, come on down front. And if if the rest of you, if you have something that you would like to say or if there's a way we can serve you, come on down before you leave. We would love to receive your confession, whatever it is. But now those who are able, let's go ahead and stand and let's pray and then let's sing our confession to our good, good Father. Father, thank you for the gift of confession. Thank you that it unlocks something that blocks our souls. Thank you that when we keep our sins secret, it it festers and it's like a toxin. But when we share it, we're liberated. Thank you, Lord, that you invite us to live by faith rather than our false belief. And thank you that you invite us to step into bold truth, that you are the Lord. You are the Son of the living God. And Lord, we just declare that with great joy now as we sing in Jesus' name.